Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were... Basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not a hundred percent, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast's October extravaganza. This month, I will be releasing some extra podcasts just for your viewing or listening pleasure. Some will include our most beloved horror movie villains, and we will also have killer moms and some strange tales. So if you are enjoying these for October or have a particular favorite, let me know. Like, share, subscribe, all the stuff. Thank you so much. So this October extravaganza podcast slash video will be on none other than Pinhead. So will every word of this be official canon? I highly doubt it. There's actually a lot of different media and movies and comic books and things that go in a lot of different directions. So just sit back and relax and enjoy the story. Oh, and thank you, Ashley, for helping me find some of this information. So let's just jump right in. An Englishman and British soldier by the name of Elliot Spencer was serving his country and fighting during World War I and was part of the Battle of Flanders. Now this was actually real and the name of several battles fought in Flanders, which was a region in northern France and Belgium. The battles ranged from the later 1914s to the later 1918s. An actual soldier that had been there spoke about how all of his fellow soldiers had died on the first day of one of the battles. It was nearly 60,000 British troops. It was during his time that our character, Elliot, had his faith in humanity shaken to his core. When he had once been a respected and charismatic leader of men, he turned into, quote, someone seeking out the kind of pain doled out by the Cenobites. And we'll get into the Cenobites in a moment. Elliot, it would appear, would go on to have a rather serious case of PTSD and survivor's guilt. It would seem that Elliot indeed felt that he too should have gone down with his men and that the sight of so many of his fellow countrymen perishing so brutally To hear their screams of agony and despair coming from all directions simply broke him. He later said that this disrupted his faith in people and that God had led him to experiment in torture. Elliot said, quote, We'd seen God fail us, so many dead. For us, 
He too fell at Flanders. The war destroyed my generation. Those that didn't die drank themselves to death. I went further. I was an explorer of forbidden pleasures. Opening the box was my final act of exploration of discovery." Unquote. So we can come at this from a few different angles. But soldiers that have seen the very worst of war and have severe PTSD and survivor's guilt experience recurrent, unwanted, and distressing memories of the traumatic event, reliving the event as if it were happening again, which we usually call flashbacks, upsetting dreams or nightmares about the traumatic event, and severe emotional distress or physical reactions to something that reminds you of that traumatic event. They could cause negative thoughts about yourself or about the people around you, feeling hopeless about the future, memory problems, difficulty maintaining close relationships, feeling detached from loved ones, difficulty experiencing positive emotions, feeling quite numb, actually, you get the idea. PTSD sufferers are often always on guard, feeling as if they are in danger. They indulge in self-destructive behaviors, are irritable, and have angry outbursts or display aggressive behaviors. It is very intense and very real. So then let's touch on the Cenobites. So what even is that? Fans of the universe know, but for those that don't... They are defined as, quote, explorers in the future regions of experience, demons to some, angels to others, unquote. They are extra-dimensional beings, sometimes also referred to as, quote, the surgeons. Cenobite is a word meaning a member of a communal religious order. They are able to reach Earth's realm or reality only through a split or tear in time and space, which is only opened and closed during the time that some unearthly artifact is opened or closed. So here comes the lament configuration. In this universe is the most common tool to open this or create that tear. And again, more on the tool in a moment. According to the Hellraiser wiki, the Cenobites vary in number, appearance, and motivations, which can all change between the films, books, media, what have you. But generally, they all have disturbing mutilations and body modification type piercings all over their bodies. And though the term, quote, hell is thrown around a lot, they aren't actually associated with any traditional Christian or other, quote, depiction of damnation, demonic nature, or be of infernal origin, unquote. They display a depraved indifference or lack of empathy toward all of their victims. It is thought that they manifested as devoted followers of a supernatural hedonism with unorthodox definitions of pleasure, being that there are two forms— the expansion of sensation to an extremely painful point of sensory overload, and the enduring, excruciating pain through incessant tortures that transcend traditional laws of physics. Again, this is a direct quote from the Hellraiser wiki. Now, the Cenobites don't actually outwardly show morality or immorality, just 
a deep devotion to their actions. Depending on what medium you watch, read, etc., they all were once humans who then became Cenobites by the supernatural power native to their own personal dimension that they had originally come from. And also more on that in a bit as well. So the dimension that the Cenobites themselves reside in is described as a massive labyrinth looking very much like M.C. Escher's Relativity Lithograph. It's the drawing of stairs going in many directions to doors that the laws of physics could not possibly follow. I'll leave a link to a site where you can see the picture. It'll be familiar when you see it. Now in the center of this labyrinth is the levitating Leviathan, who is described as, quote, the god of flesh and desire, unquote, is the ruler of all of the dark arts. It is a gigantic, rotating, kind of metallic shard that shines a black beam of light. And if someone comes into contact with that beam of black light, they will see and feel all of their sins and wrongdoings. Some believe Leviathan is a fallen angel from the Christian Bible. But according to legend, it actually existed long before there was any sort of life. And once was officially created, no matter the realm or dimension, nature and chaos sort of exploded, spilling over into the Leviathan's perfect order. This allowed the new, quote, life to rupture through the walls of this dimension, thus giving birth to that cold and dark labyrinth. So to try to recap, I know it's a lot. The Leviathan is the lord of the labyrinth and is the master and creator of the Cenobites and uses whatever supernatural force can work in whichever dimension to change people into Cenobites, okay? Stick with me. Now back to our dearest and broken Captain Elliot Spencer. It is said that he again was completely traumatized from the gory, bloody and horrific spoils of war and began to wander India to, quote, fulfill every carnal desire he could think of. He indulged in sex and violence, and once he had gotten his fill of that, he discovered the lament configuration. Now, this, of course, is the famous little cube puzzle box. The Lament Configuration is actually a collection of puzzle boxes and the one used primarily in the Hellraiser movies, and it's Lemarchand's box. The Lament Configuration is actually a collection of puzzle boxes and the one used primarily in the Hellraiser movies is called Lemarchand's box. These puzzle boxes are a mystical and mechanical device that acts as sort of a key to the door between however many dimensions and the labyrinth where the Cenobites are. Solving the box connects the realms and beings can travel in either direction across the schism or tear in space and time. To Christians, this puzzle box might, let's say, open a portal to hell if you'd like to look at it that way. These boxes were created by a character named Philip Le Marchand. Now, he has a couple of backstories, but for this story, he was a young and ingenious toy maker known for his intricate mechanical designs. He built the puzzle boxes that were meant to reveal deeply held secrets or satisfy dark desires for anyone who could solve them. The Lament configuration was commissioned from Le Marchand by an aristocrat in 1784. 
This aristocrat was completely obsessed with dark magic. The aristocrat had previously, with the help of a servant, murdered a woman, removed all of her insides out of her body, including every bone, leaving just a sort of skin sack, if you will. Then the man used the lament configuration to summon a demon princess and offered the skin suit for her to use. So the box itself can be best thought of as sort of a Pandora's box. It appeared as an antique black lacquered puzzle box and the detail and craftsmanship were most impressive. But never forget that it is a complicated puzzle box that is not easily solved. Apparently there is also music that can come from within the box as the person sits running their fingers over and around the box trying to figure out how to open it not knowing what faces them once they do. It has been noted that it is thought that if some boxes open a portal to hell or whatever you want to call it, other boxes might open a portal to heaven. Elliot found the lament configuration and sat on the floor in a sparse bedroom of sorts, also working his hands over the sides and decor of the cube. Once he realizes he is beginning to solve the box and it finally opens, he creates that sort of tear in the space-time continuum and thus his transformation begins. The Leviathan uses the supernatural force of an earthly old Aztec god, Shipa Totec, to pull Elliot in. Now, this was an agricultural god associated with the rebirth of the spring season and was known to cut off some of his own flesh to feed humanity. He was also known to wear the skin of a human victim, which was the, quote, new skin that covered the earth in the spring. So just as Elliot is carefully peering within the box, these chains burst forth with what looks like fishing hooks on the ends. They grab his flesh through his shirt and they are ripping at his skin. He screams in horror and agonizing pain as he is pulled into the labyrinth. His hair is removed, a grid cut into his scalp and face as nails are hammered at every cross point. His skin turns very pale white and he is still screaming in agony. Then once the process is done, Elliot, who has now been turned into who we know as Pinhead, can be heard quietly saying, quote, the suffering, the sweet suffering, unquote. His transformation into the Cenobite, Pinhead, is now complete. Pinhead is the leader of the Cenobites, the priest of hell, or the pope of hell, if you will. Now, Pinhead actually calls himself a, quote, explorer in the further regions of experience, unquote. In his new form, as I said, Pinhead is ghostly white, his face and head covered in nails on a grid pattern. He wears a black robe of sorts, but it appears to be made out of leather and is skin tight around his torso. There are holes around his pectoral region and another long and narrow one down his abdomen. And Pinhead is seriously into BDSM, which means bondage, dominance, and sadomasochism. Now, interestingly, Pinhead, unlike his horror villain counterparts, is actually quite articulate and highly intelligent, though at times he does mourn the futility of his own existence. 
Penhead also has an entourage of other Cenobites who love nothing more than to prey upon those with, quote, enough lust to call out to them, unquote. His group is referred to as the Order of the Gash and describe themselves as explorers in the further reaches of experience. Some of his cohorts are Chatterer, whose twisted white and red flesh make his head look like an alien, and his lips are ripped backwards while his teeth perpetually chatter. Chatterer, like Pinhead and the others, they lose all memory of their mortal life prior to becoming a Cenobite. But Chatterer became a Cenobite when he was still a pretty young boy after playing with the box. Another follower is Derelict, a.k.a. the Puzzle, a.k.a. Guardian. It acts as the protector of the Lament Configuration box, ensuring it never comes into any danger. And then there is the one only referred to as Female Cenobite, who was once a beautiful woman before discovering the forbidden temptations of that box. She is the High Priestess of Hell and nearly always right beside Pinhead. She has no hair, a piercing through the bridge of her nose, as well as a very large kind of ring that goes through both of her cheeks. At a cross point, the diameter attaches to her throat and then down her chest. The next member of Pinhead's posse is a Cenobite named Butterball. He was originally an obese and perverted man who sought the ultimate pleasure in sin. He too had solved the puzzle box and was sucked into the labyrinth. So as time went on, the Cenobites were conducting quite painful, torturous pleasures to any who made the mistake of solving the Lament configuration. And here is where we get into the story of the first movie for Pinhead. So a man named Frank Cotton was in Northern Africa in Morocco trying to make a purchase from some dealer and that's when we first see the box. He takes the box as the merchant says, quote, take the box, it's yours. It always was, unquote. Then Frank is shown kneeling on the floor with candles in a square formation around him. He is shirtless, holding the box delicately in his hands. He begins working the box, rubbing his thumbs on it until it begins to come apart. The walls around him begin to have a blue, hazy, light glow. He finally solves the puzzle box as the chains and hooks come out and rip at his flesh. He is then thrust into the labyrinth with all manner of whips and chains, hooks and bloody piles of flesh everywhere. Pinhead stands stoically looking over the flesh to find the pieces of Frank and begins to sort of put him back together. Pinhead puts the puzzle box back together and thus taking with him the many parts of Frank and the entire scene with him back to their realm. And then later we see a nice married couple, Larry and Julia. They go into the house that Larry's parents had owned and had sat empty for a bit of time. Of course, Larry is Frank's brother, and Julia had been having an affair with Frank, but we'll get into that. As they are looking through the house they intend to move into, the phone rings and Larry answers it. It's his daughter, Kirsty, saying that she's found a room, and immediately you get the sense that she's not really keen on going to that house to be around Julia. 
Julia goes upstairs to like an attic room and she finds that Frank had indeed been kind of squatting there. And she finds a secret stash of photographs of Frank and different women, most of them during the throes of passion. And then Larry and Julia begin to move in and unpack their belongings and Kirsty comes over to look at the house herself. And then we find out that Julia is not Kirsty's real mother and you get the sense that they just don't get along. As they begin to unpack, Julia walks through the room Frank had been squatting in, remembering the prior affairs that she had had with him, which are graphic. It becomes quite clear that they are both into their own kinks, not that I'm kink shaming, and they actually have sex on top of her wedding dress. Julia is then pulled out of her daydream as Larry enters the room, bleeding profusely from his hand. His blood is dripping fairly quickly onto the wood floor, running off of his hand and being absorbed between the floorboards. And then the camera pans down to beneath the floor to a beating heart just below. And then once the couple leave to go to the hospital to get Larry's hand stitched up, the floorboards in that room begin to come up and they're oozing some kind of liquid out from between. And then two grotesque arms come bursting from the floor as a skeletal body begins to build itself back up tissue by blood vessel, brain matter and rib. So then we see Julia and Larry having dinner guests over. Kirsty is making eyes with the younger gentleman at the table and everyone is having a good hearted laugh. Julia, however, is visibly upset and she announces that she is going to bed. As she leaves the dining room, she hears some kind of creaking coming from upstairs. So she walks upstairs and then she can hear these kind of low whispers as she opens the door. Then the voices stop as soon as she gets inside. She can hear the heartbeat, though she can't at first locate the source. Then a hand grabs her leg and a human body with no skin calls out, Julia! She is terrified as it yells at her for help. That body then tells her that it is indeed Frank. He explains that his brother's blood brought him back. He continues to plead with her for help. Julia then realizes that Frank needs more blood in order to fully heal, so she leaves the upstairs attic room only to run into Kirsty on the stairs. Kirsty definitely picks up that Julia is acting strangely, but she scurries off to go spend time with that young man. They discuss how Kirsty thinks Julia is stuffy and entirely too polite. Then later we see Julia is in bed with Larry. He's fast asleep. She is still thinking back on the intense sexual connection that she and Frank had. She gets up, goes back to the room, and says that she will get him more blood. So Julia brings a man she met while out of the house and kills him, offering the blood to Frank, who does heal a bit more. Frank then tells her that he needs at least one more body, if not two, for him to completely heal, and they can leave before the Cenobites realize that he has escaped them. So Julia brings him yet another victim. Frank then shows Julia the box, and this is when we first see Pinhead and his entourage. Frank explains that they showed him the limits of pain and pleasure. The next victim that she brings to the house, Kirsty witnesses from a distance and begins to approach the house. 
Once inside, she hears noises from elsewhere in the house and goes to explore, only to find Frank's victim stumbling out of that attic room, face bloated and begging for help. It is then that she sees her Uncle Frank, a bloody, skinless being with a suit on. He gets her inside the room as she begs him not to touch her. It becomes obvious that he wants to use her to continue to heal himself. A fight ensues and Kirsty grabs the box. As Frank demands that she give it back, she throws it out of a window as he screams, No! She runs outside, grabs the box, and escapes, walking down the street, clearly stunned at what she had just seen. She finally faints on the sidewalk and then wakes up in a hospital. She demands to speak to her father, but the doctor won't let her. The doctor pulls the puzzle box out of his pocket and asks her about it. He then sets it on the sort of rolling table tray and leaves the room. She's curious and begins to hold the box, you know, like running her fingers over the intricate designs on the sides. A part of it then begins to come apart or open, and then a small blue lightning bolt shocks her hand, just as the very walls of her room break open. She walks toward the opening to see a very long and dark corridor. Cautiously, she steps past the threshold and enters. The walls are red with dried blood, and she can hear a child's screams. Then she is faced with a Cenobite running at her down the corridor, its body twisted and mangled and arms splayed and head coming from the bottom of the body. She narrowly escapes back into her room and the wall is closed, though she can hear the creature just on the other side. Then her room begins to go dark. The subway tiles on one wall begin to steam. She is trapped in the room. Blood is running down the walls, and then we see Chatterer walking toward her in his black leather robe. Pinhead and Butterball then appear. Pinhead says, quote, The box. You opened it. We came. Unquote. She screams, It's just a puzzle box. Pinhead replies, quote, Oh no, it is a means to summon us. Unquote. She pleads for the Chatterer to release her. Then the female makes her appearance. Pinhead states, quote, Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Unquote. This is when she tells the Cenobites that clearly Frank has escaped them, and at first they are skeptical. She tells them she will take them to him. Pinhead states that if she lies to them, quote, will tear your soul apart. Unquote. So back at the house, Julia lured Larry upstairs, and though we don't see it happen, we do see Frank come down fully healed, only he's wearing his brother's skin. Kirsty ran to the house and beat on the door, and Julia let her in. She demands to see her father, and when she does, she leaps into his arms, not knowing that it's actually Frank. Julia takes Kirsty upstairs to show her, quote, Frank's body, where she shuts her in the room. And now Pinhead, along with his gang, appear in the room as well. Pinhead exclaims, quote, 
we want the man who did this, unquote. And he's referring to the fleshy skeleton on the floor that is Kirsty's father. Kirsty runs out of the room, downstairs, and begins to realize that the man saying, quote, come to daddy, is really frank, and she claws at his face, like ripping the flesh. Frank went to stab Kirsty, but accidentally stabbed Julia instead, killing her. He then goes upstairs to locate his niece. They wind up back in the attic room, where Pinhead and the group appear from the shadows. The chains from the labyrinth come bursting forth as the room transforms into a torture chamber. Pinhead tells Kirsty, quote, This isn't for your eyes, unquote. A chain grabs Frank by the hand, pulling him away from Kirsty. More and more hooked chains rip at Frank as he says, quote, Jesus wept, unquote. Kirsty leaves the room. She finds Julia's body where the box is in her hands and Kirsty grabs the box, beginning to work the puzzle. Pinhead appears behind her and says, quote, We have such sights to show you, unquote. She screams at him to go to hell and puts the box back together, sending Pinhead and his cohorts back to their own dimension. Kirsty goes on to drop the box into a fire, hopefully destroying it, where it is saved by a homeless man who catches fire and becomes a flying skeletal demon type thing and flies away with it. We then see the box again on a tabletop in Morocco where the dealer is about to sell it to yet another man. So there are more movies along with comics and other forms of media that further tell Pinhead's story. I have always absolutely loved this character, and the actor who portrays him did an excellent job. I hope you enjoyed this story. Have a good evening. <laughs>